Uh, Lord God above, we do ask your blessing upon your word, even as we have already prayed that you would bless the reading and preaching of the word uh, comprehensively in this church. Would you even do so now? And we desperately need to hear from heaven. Oh God, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I used science illustrations this morning. I'm doing it again. This one's more sociology, I guess. No, more science. It's actually one of the most interesting kind of quasi-fake science books I think I've ever read. It's a book named, uh, called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I've, I've referenced it before because it just it blows my brain. Uh, Gladwell and others are looking kind of at the, the realm of neuroscience. And in his book Blink, he considers a thing called thin slicing. Uh, it's the ability that God has made humans with to make judgments on spectacularly small amounts of information. It's actually where I referenced this morning is where I first learned about the marriage lab where they begin, they've been able to predict accurately how, much, uh, how likely a couple is to get divorced by just three minutes of arguing. And they have other things they've done that is really, it's just captivating to see how the human body and mind works. Uh, one of them, they've brought gamblers in and they hook them up to the full body test, you know, heart rate, sweaty hands, uh, you know, their breathing, their temperature, their brain, everything. And they give them two decks of cards and a whole bunch of money and say, bet on each deck. And you bet, and then you take a card, and, and you get your money back or whatever else. And, and one deck of cards is it's small but quantifiable wins. But if you actually bet it the whole way through, you'll win it all. The other makes you feel good because there's some big wins in it, but overall, you're going to lose all of your money if you bet it out. And it's funny because after about maybe 15 cards, the gamblers all figure it out. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go red deck. I won't touch the blue because it's the bad one. But the amazing thing is that their, their body actually figures it out after like five or six cards. Because when they, the scientists started noting long before the person's even aware of what's going on, when their hand reaches for the bad deck, their heart rate spikes, their respiration spikes, and their hands sweat like mad. Their body's telling them no, even before they recognize it. It's amazing. I mean, just the, the way that God has made the human, human mind. Uh, another one they've done is just, again, captivating. They, they took uh, doctors' interviews with patients. They recorded the doctor talking to the patient. Then they ran the, the audio through the Charlie Brown synthesizer, you know, where it takes the adults and makes them womp, 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 womp. So you can't understand what they're saying. So you're not actually hearing about people's medical conditions. You just, you hear the doctor talking, but you hear their cadence, their volume, their tone, their pitch. You get the feel of what the doctor says, but you don't hear the content of it. And then they took people off the street and they played them 20-second clips and said, hey, has this person ever been sued for malpractice? I mean, this is an amazing. Think about this. They're listening to 20 seconds of wah-wah, wah wah listening for 20 seconds of that. And you know what? They're like 98% accurate. They don't even understand the words they're speaking. They just listen to the pitch, to the cadence, and the feel of it is enough for them to make a judgment call. Yeah, I don't trust that doctor. You have no idea what they are. You can't tell anything other than their pitch, their tone, their cadence, but they're accurate. The human body is, the mind, 
amazing ability to process things with very limited amounts of data. The problem is that sometimes we get it really wrong. And sometimes we actually will extrapolate our own set of data out, and this is where I think probably our biggest miscommunications happen. Where you hear something that someone else says, and you take your own data set and kind of fill in the gaps and run into all kinds of problems. See, part of what the Gospels are as books, they're literary thin slices to help us understand who Jesus is. I mean, it's, it's told to us that, look, if, if we had everything Jesus had ever done written down, it would take more books than the entire world could handle. I mean, all the books ever published would be about what Jesus has done, and it still wouldn't cover everything that he's done. Instead, we have one big book, but four smaller books within it that tell us exactly who he is, but it gives us just enough data to formulate a clear portrait of who he is. I mean, does it give us enough to have an idea of what his personality test would be? No. Does it give us enough to note, was he a tenor or a bass? No. I mean, we know he wasn't very handsome, but we don't know a whole lot more about his physical appearance. I mean, he was one that would not be looked at, you wouldn't be excited about. He's not cut out of the same cloth as Saul in that regard. This is a guy who would have been overlooked, but it doesn't give us those things. It just gives us just enough of the important details to anchor everything on. It's part of what makes heaven so exciting. We get all of the rest of the story. I mean, we get to learn all of the things that we haven't yet been able to experience, which is exciting and delightful. Here, uh, at the end of Mark chapter 2, what Mark is doing in the Holy Spirit is giving us a snapshot as to exactly what kind of God Jesus is and exactly what kind of ministry he's conducting. What does the ministry of Jesus look like? Put differently, what does the kingdom of Jesus look like? Put maybe even a bit more differently, what is the church of Jesus supposed to look like? And the way this is recorded, you really have the entire story hinging on three questions. Divvies up nice and tidy, and we're going to look at the passage in light of those three questions. Beginning of chapter 2, Jesus has done a miracle. He's healed uh, this paralytic. It's shocking. It's jaw-dropping. It's amazing. It's captivating. And uh, we've never seen anything like this. And so Jesus goes out and begins teaching again, and the crowd comes to him like, no joke. No joke, you've already done these miracles and people are staggered by them. They're confused by them. And now Jesus goes and the crowd follows him everywhere. And you have this amazing, I mean, this is what I'm talking about with giving us just enough to understand. Verse 14 describes the conversion of a man through the calling of Jesus and it's reduced to two words, follow me. I want to know what that conversation is. I mean, it was it literally just Jesus said, hey, follow me. And the guy's like, okay, and that was it. That was the whole thing. Or was there more to it? I'm, I, I'm eager to know. I can't wait for heaven. But as Jesus is passing by, he sees Matthew, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he's like, hey, fella, come follow me. And there's a bit of information that we would need to know from that to remember. Many of you know this. The tax collector in that day was not a noble profession. 
not really sure tax collectors would ever be considered noble profession, if we're going to be honest. Uh, I've met one IRS agent. She was very nice and pleasant, but I wouldn't necessarily consider that a noble job, but okay. This time, though, it was a particularly unpleasant job. It was fairly devious and pretty much extortion. You see, the tax collector bid for the job from the government, and they paid the government for the opportunity to do it. I'll pay the government $100,000 to collect all the taxes from Gold Hill Road. And I'm going to charge everybody on Gold Hill Road a bajillion dollars, and the government's not going to say a word about it because they already have their $100,000 from me. Now, you notice there's no standardized tax rate in that. It's not a flat tax. It's not based on your income. It's based on how much the tax collector can get away with charging before somebody gives him a little visit and a dagger in the night. He can charge as much as he wants. That's not going to get him killed. And you can see this is not the kind of person who's going to generate friendship everywhere they go. They're going to generate money because they're going to have a whole lot of it but it's going to be gained off the backs of their friends and neighbors and, well, not friends, former friends. So Matthew here, sitting uh, in the booth doing the tax collection, uh, is probably in the, doing it as in the merchant section, the shipping section, so that as the merchants would come into town or something of the sort, come into the region, they would have to pay their tax that he would charge them. And again, extortion, unbelievably high rates. And he is, therefore, filthy rich. Again, filthy rich, very much like Washington, D.C. today. So when Jesus says to him, follow me, it's not just a call to follow Christ. It's a call to walk away from the highest income job that a regular person could get. Like if you wanted to make your millions in this day effectively, this is the job to do it. It's it's the sweet gig. I mean, nobody's going to like you. The people that you're going to hang out with are going to be fairly... Shady will be delicate to say, but you'll have a whole lot of money. Which then immediately kind of manifests itself in this man's conversion. He gets excited about having been converted and he invites Jesus to his house and throws a feast. So he invites Jesus in and he invites all of the buddies that he has, which aren't many, but the people he does know are again fairly seedy. And you get what has to be one of those spectacular moments in church history to think about the Lord of life eating with the types of people we would be embarrassed to talk to in a polite social setting. The kinds of people that he's hanging out with, the kinds of people that we would not like to um, acknowledge exist in polite society. Ladies who might work in the evening would have been fairly um, well accomplished in this realm. Again, think of anything that exists just outside a military base or any major port in America. I mean, today's version of this would be drug dealers and gangsters and all kinds of people who would live off of illicit monies. And the Lord of Life sitting right there in the middle. And the first question comes and it says, and it makes sense really, why does he eat with these people? I mean, no, seriously, like, why does he eat with these people? 
I mean, we know Jesus. I mean, we know he's poor. I mean, you can think, you can figure out the Pharisees' kind of logic here. I mean, we know he's poor. He's not a high-class guy. He's not likely to get invited to all of the nice parties yet because he has no income or name. But seriously, he can do better than this. I mean, not. I mean, folks like that, really. Why is he hanging out with these particularly if he says, if he's as holy as he says he is? And there's a a kind of hidden presupposition here. You see, they're presuming that one, Jesus can do better for himself, not realizing that's absolutely true. He could, but he's choosing not to. But they're missing somehow as they presume that somehow he can be contaminated by them. That their infidelity, that their immorality, that their illicit dealings could somehow rub off on him and dirty him and mess him up. And Christ answers them this slick answer, a proverb of his own, and it's so effective it really shuts their mouths on the spot. Look here, fellas. I'm a doctor. Doctors come for the sick. They don't come for the well. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. He he explains, why does he need to hang out with these people? Because these are the only people in the room, the only people in the equation that actually understand that they need something. The only ones who understand that they actually need help. He's uh, affiliating with the lowly of heart. And it fits the beginning of the ministry the way that Matthew himself tells it. What's the first words in Matthew's gospel in Christ's teaching ministry? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Interesting that the man who's throwing this party begins his gospel with that. And it shows us just very rapidly and initially just a a quick glimpse into the nature of the ministry, the kingdom of Christ. You see, it's not a kingdom that's built on those that are already finished products. It's built on those that are not yet finished products. That's the design for his kingdom. It's it's to be a kingdom that's built up into a kingdom of priests, that's built up into a holy kingdom, that's built up into a place of delight and joy, but its beginning place is and always will be brokenness. And I think there's always a danger that a church that's emphasizing sanctification could easily get confused in this area. To demand that everybody, the second they walk through the doors, is a finished product. I think if the church is growing correctly, we're we're really, we need to be in those moments of awkwardness and uncomfortability periodically where people say things or do things or behave in ways where you're like, oh, not because they're just being, you know, ridiculous, but because they're still learning to act that way. They just don't know better yet. Now, can we think about this with parenting? It happens all the time, don't you? As you raise your young children, there's parts where they do things or say things where you're mortified. Oh, stop talking, child! Stop talking, child! Stop talking, child! And then you have to pull them aside afterwards and be like, we don't say that. Or do that ever. And again, why? Because it's part of the maturing process. But yet, 
somehow, sometimes there's this danger that the church slips into the side of the Pharisees that say the same thing. Look, hey, we understand that children have to mature and develop, but the second that you walk through these doors, we don't have that same pattern spiritually for adults. We don't have a category for an immature person who needs to yet grow up spiritually speaking. That's a problem. If this is going to be a church that... uh, values evangelism, values bringing in the the unbeliever and bringing them in, there are going to have to be moments of uncomfortability where they do things and say things that you're just mortified were done in public. I told the story last week to a couple of folks, but I remember in college, one of my buddies and I having to sit down with one of my hallmates who had just recently been converted and being like, brother, you, you can't drop swear words when you're praying. I know that's part of your normal vocabulary, but we got to stop while you're praying. We'll worry about the other stuff later, but just while you're praying, you can't say those words. Go for five or six letters, please. Just drop all of the other ones out. Again, a category, we, we need to have this category for us. Because again, you look at, this is the ministry that Jesus builds. It's designed around the lowly of heart. It's designed around those that are a mess. In fact, the only ones that end up coming out villains in this story are the ones who think they already have it all together. I'm a finished product. Oh, great, you're a villain in the story. Sorry. And continues, we get another kind of snapshot into the ministry of Jesus. First, he, he affiliates with the lowly of heart. He intentionally goes after those that don't believe their finished products, that poverty of spirit. But his ministry continues, and as he's going about with his disciples, there's this awkward moment where the Pharisees are fasting. We know at this point in church history, they fasted twice a week. And John's disciples are fasting, and you remember that's not a Christian fasting and Christian baptism. Uh, John's preparation for that, but John is the last of the Old Testament, not just the first of the New. You realize he was probably only actually ministering for two and a half years before they killed him? Like from start to finish, his ministry was probably like just between 18 months and just over two years. That's a really amazing thing. But all of them are fasting, and the guys, again, corner Jesus, and they ask him, like, look, here we have the Pharisees. They're serious about spirituality. They're fasting. We have John. He's serious about spirituality, though in a different way. They're fasting. Now, you and your guys, and to be fair, Jesus, you hang out with a bunch of hoodlums. I mean, your crowd is rough. We'll say that. And none of them are fasting. In fact... They're probably partying a bit more than any of us would be comfortable with. Again, just knowing the crew that he hung out with, at least in his parting, I mean, you have to think how many times he was preaching to people who were just absolutely hammered, had way too much to drink. And so they asked the question, how come you don't fast? How come your disciples aren't fasting? Don't you take spirituality seriously? You see, that's actually the question at the heart of it. The first one was a trick is saying, well, now, Jesus, what kind of people are you after? Are you really after scum or are you after nice people like me? The second one is actually questioning his seriousness. I mean, Jesus, are you actually serious? I mean, look at the Pharisees. They're serious. I mean, man, they fast twice a week. 
They're nice and thin. Look at John's. They take it seriously. I mean, he's living out in the middle of nowhere eating bugs. Of course he's fasting. Uh, He has to eat bugs when he's not. Aren't you taking it seriously, Jesus? And it's interesting because Jesus answers this serious question with joy. He goes to a wedding illustration. And is like, hey, if you're in the middle of the wedding, it's kind of rude to go on a diet in front of the groom. Like, if it's actually in the middle of the reception, it's kind of rude to be like, hey, look, I know the wedding's great and everything, and the food's nice and all y'all, but, like, i got to watch my figure right now. I can't do that. No! If you're part of the bridal party and you're part of the feast and you're part of the festivities, you rejoice, you celebrate, you partake in all of the joys and delights and blessings and excitement that come from that event. Jesus is saying, look, he's the groom. He's the one that's there. You don't go into sorrow mode when you're there. You don't go into fasting mode when he's there. No, there's going to be a time coming for that. Kind of give them the little foreshadowing, the little hint. (laughs) Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to be dead for a little bit. You'll want to fast at that point. I'm not going to stay dead. Don't worry, but be ready. And then turns to 21 and 22, and this is the part of the, the paragraph here that kind of throws everybody for a loop, and commentators sometimes have a little bit of a hissy fit about, and you hear old-timey preachers absolutely mishandle uh, in all of the, the worst kind of ways. 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in that day. You don't, you don't fast when Jesus is there. He's the Lord of joy. When the Lord of joy is in your presence, you be joyful too. Instead, now 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and new from the old, no tears made, uh, the tears made worse. So uh, when you're patching things, you use the same kind of garments. Because if you, you take a, a thing that's already shrunk, pre-shrunk cotton, and you put something that's not shrunk on it, and you put them together, it's going to shrink, and then it tears everything and messes it up. Likewise with the wineskins. When you're making wine, you have to put them in the right kind of storage uh, facility uh, because it's going to ferment. And when it ferments, it produces gas. And when it produces gas, it increases pressure and gets bigger until the gas goes away, and then it gets back into normal size. In this case, they were talking about leather wineskins, and you would need to make sure that they were fresh and oiled so that when the, the grape juice began to ferment and the alcohol was being produced and the pressure changed, the leather could handle the stretching. If the leather couldn't handle the stretching, it would burst, and you would lose all the wine, which is a source of blessing in God's uh, economy. That's how he views it as blessing. And you lose the skin itself. Instead, you use the proper equipment. You use a a fresh wineskin, and it can handle the pressure change, and then as the gas dissipates, and then you have good wine afterwards. Jesus uses these two illustrations to actually address the issue of fasting. I think he's actually addressing the entire Old Testament as a whole. To say, look, Pharisees, You've built your idea of spirituality around a mismanagement of the Old Testament. You've mismanaged the idea of the tithe to the point where you tithe out out of your garden herbs. 
You've mismanaged the idea of the Sabbath to the point where you have 39 different illustrations of what work looks like and you regulate down to the number of steps you're allowed to take on the Sabbath. You've mismanaged the idea of prayer to the point where you're self-edifying and self-aggrandizing as opposed to seeking humility. You're misunderstanding the idea of Christian charity that you judge a teacher for ministering to those that are ignorant, which is the previous paragraph. And in doing so, what you're doing, Pharisees, is attempting to take the ministry of a new king, the ministry of a new covenant, and staple it onto the old. And it's just not going to work that way. You've mismanaged the Old Testament. You've missed the foreshadowing elements of it. And so now what you're even trying to get them to do is to put the New Testament onto a mismanaged pattern of the old. And the whole thing falls apart. Instead, we're called to be those that have lives that are cultivated with joy from the presence of the Lord and have spiritual disciplines that flow not from a mismanaged idea of the Old Testament, not flowing from a legalism or a this is how we must do things, but instead to be a people of joy. I think a better way to maybe articulate this, or not better, but a clearer way for me, is to say what Jesus is contending for is an ethic of joy. When it comes time to evaluate what's right or wrong and and how we do it, we don't simply obey because mom told us to. We don't simply obey because God told us to. We don't simply obey because that's what the Ten Commandments are. But we also obey because the Lord of joy has said this is the path of joy. You want to have joy. You want to have delight. It's given in obedience. Third question, very quickly. This is my favorite. This is probably the most complicated, and I've saved the least time for it. It's a well-managed sermon right there. 23, one Sabbath, he's going through the grain fields, and as they make their ways, disciples begin to pluck heads of grain. Uh, we know from the other Gospels, it's, they're hungry as they're walking on the Lord's day. And you can kind of get the picture as they walk through a path and the grain is high. Uh, this is probably, if the, if the climate was the same then as it is today, sometime between April and August. Uh, that, depending on the altitude of where they were walking, we don't exactly know. Uh, but between April and August. And Deuteronomy 23 allowed for you, uh, if you were walking through fields like this, to just reach out and grab food and eat it. As long as you did not use a sickle or a harvesting device, it was considered fine, good, and right to just help yourself to whoever's field it was. And so as they're walking, they grab a handful of uh, heads of grain. And Luke tells us, I think, that they rolled it between their hands to break them up. And then they took the kernels of the, the grain and ate them as they're walking and talking. And you kind of have to kind of get, again, a portrait of what's taking place and wrap your mind around exactly what's happening. You have men that are listening to the actual instruction of the second person of the Trinity. And as they're listening to the discipleship of the Savior, their bodies start to not wear out, but like break down. They need food. And so they start taking snacks as they walk, being discipled by the Savior. And what happens? The Pharisees say, look! Look! 
Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they breaking the Sabbath? And again, the Pharisees had so subdivided what could be done on the Sabbath, they had 39 categories of what was not allowed. And there's actually a number of them that they're potentially breaking here. Uh, They're walking and they're reaping. And uh, I think there was another eating, preparing category that considered sin as well. And so these guys are violating the Sabbath day, according to the Pharisees, multiple times over, missing the point that they're actually snacking so they can listen to the instructions of their Savior. So Jesus defeats them and defeats their argument by going to 1 Samuel. I mean, the place that we would all naturally jump to, I'm sure, um, by quoting uh, 1 Samuel 21. Look, have you never read what happened with David? David was fleeing. He was in trouble. He was in need. He was hungry. And so what did he do? He went to Nod, where the Ark of the Covenant was being kept, to the house of the Lord. And he went in. And with the priest's blessing, interesting here, they quote Abiathar, who is likely the son of Ahimelech, um, and not go with the same name, which is an interesting change that Jesus intentionally makes. Uh, I think probably just to set them off a little bit more. Uh, But it says, look, they went in and they got food they weren't allowed to eat and they ate it. And if David did it and God approved of it, do you really have such a problem with us? Do you really have such a problem with what we're doing? Are we doing anything more or less than what King David himself did? David, and we're going to say, this is, I mean, kind of be honest about this. David kind of bent the rules. I mean, we're going to be honest. What David did was specifically said a no-no. You're not allowed to go in and eat. Only the priests are allowed to eat. And David's not a priest. We talked about this Thursday in Bible study. He is a king but there's not yet the right category for priest and king. But yet he goes in and he eats and it's endorsed and it's blessed and it's okay. Because again, Jesus is explaining the nature of the kingdom here and giving and it's followed up in verse 27, the explanation of, oh yeah, by the way, this is the point that you're missing, guys. God's law, God's rules, God's pattern for spirituality is not simply a blueprint or an exercise in machinery or a list of boxes to be checked or a Google form or a Scantron or a bubble, whatever you want to put, whatever test mechanic it is. It's not something that you just, if you just check these 10 boxes, you'll be okay. No, instead, God's pattern is that his law points to something greater. It points to the God who wrote it, whose character it reflects. And in fact, actually, the whole Sabbath day, verse 27, was made for man. Not the other way around. In fact, actually, if you want to think about it, who was made first? People were made before the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day wasn't actually created until the day after people are made you got to get the ordering right. And the result of it is to understand that this day is a day that's given to people and given to people out of God's blessing, out of God's kindness. And Jesus has authority over that, for he is the one who made it. This is an aspect I think that sometimes we forget or don't fully comprehend or remember when it comes time to thinking about the Sabbath or different aspects of Christian spirituality today. Why do we have this day? Because God designed it. 
Somehow it's a reflection of his character because it's connected to the moral law. But he's made it specifically for our good. And it's crazy to think about what is it that's so good for us about it. It's a day set aside to know him. I mean, a day planned out for us to know him. Last week, I saw a print of a uh, church calendar. This one made me chuckle. And this is actually legitimately for real, like a church calendar printed from the 1800s, from a Reformed church in the early 1800s. And it said, the church calendar of holidays. And it was printed all of the Sundays of that year. It made me chuckle. It was a Reformed Presbyterian church from 200 years ago. They understood that this day is given as a holiday, a holy day, where we may know the Lord and where we may love the Lord, because that's part of how his kingdom is designed. It's designed for our good and for our obedience. And you see, these three categories, it's, it's a different kind of relationship than what our sinful hearts and minds so often like to think about. We, we try to create a Savior in our own image. And we forget that Jesus, he comes to the lowly not to the finished product. He comes with joy, but joy on his terms and not our own. Joy is to be found in his relationship, not in what we necessarily define it as. And he comes with blessing, but not blessing as we define it. As I mentioned earlier, it's not the Lexus commercials. It's not the, all of the, the financial wealth or prosperity or whatever you want to define it as. He comes with blessing, and it, weirdly enough, he defines that here as the Sabbath. He comes with a gift for his people, a proper day set aside to know him and to love him. See, this is the challenge that as we go and we go from this place this week, as we contemplate the Lord who has saved us, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of life, to be reminded not to worship the God in our own image, but that we would be understanding of the image of the God in which we exist, to love him to delight in him and to obey him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. We do ask that you would give blessing to your word, that your spirit would use it for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.